This morning we are wrapping up our four-week look at what it is to be a church member. And so we've gone and looked at this a number of different ways, but this morning we're going to land on it really on the particular uh, vantage point of what is it to you? What are your what is your role in some sense? What are your what are obligations do you have uh, before you? What is this thing uh, called church membership? What it, should this in some sense look like in our lives? Now, admittedly, as I was growing up, uh, we moved quite a bit uh, every two to three years, sometimes more. Uh, one year, actually, we moved three times in one year. And so I got an opportunity to join a number of different churches. And so what it looked like was moving wherever my family moved, because we don't generally uh, let children determine where we move. And so we'd move and we'd visit the church there. And after some weeks or whatever, my mom and dad would talk, presumably, and they would tell us on Sunday, we're all going forward. And so I knew what that looked like. I knew what that meant. And, and, and one of those times in particular kind of stands out of my mind. I can remember we had just moved back to a place we had lived once before, it was that Sunday, we walked down front, we're standing there, it's me, my older brother, and both my parents, and he says, you know why they're smiling at you, uh, don't you? And I, no, I don't, why are they smiling? So your, your fly's down. <laughs> and for a fifth grade boy, that was devastating. I just, you know, trying discreetly, <clears throat> and I, I just, there's no discreet way to check that, and so that was, that was kind of my deal, and so I never wanted to join a church after that, and I just thought, man, if you have to if you have to go through that, just forget it. Well, it, it didn't change. And, and, but, but as a fifth grader, like, that was my big thing. I don't want to do this because what if I get down there and my fly happens to be open? How awkward is that, right? How awkward is that? Well, I would submit to you that when we think about church membership and you kind of look at prevailing trends culturally about church attendance and church membership, we see that there's this serious fall off with, within our culture within people that, that self-identify as Christians and just kind of culture at large, we see that there is this shrinking attitude in, in attendance and any other number of things where it's just kind of lagged off and it's, it's fallen off. And so I want us to look at that today, and I want us to consider first from the perspective of, you know, what do our hearts need to look like as members? What do our hearts need to look like? And then establishing our hearts, what, what are our actions then? If so if we can kind of know this is what my heart should look like, this is what it should sound like, this is how I should be, then from the basis of that, we can translate over to discover what some of our actions should look like. And so that's my, that's my intention. Well, the Apostle Paul, you'll notice if you go through the New Testament, he, he writes specific letters to specific, to specific churches, Right? And so it's giving us the idea and the understanding that, that when Paul sent this letter to the church in Philippi, that he wrote and sent this letter to people who identified and said, man, I am a part of this local body. When he sent uh, the, one of the two letters to the church in Thessalonica, he sent it to people who said, I am, I'm, I'm a part of this body. And, and being a part of that body had certain uh, accounts for accountability and, and there's a way they responded to the leadership. There's the way they responded internally in the body because they were identified, self-identifying as a part of them. But to this church in Philippi specifically, Paul in some sense addressed the idea of unity. Now unity has a wonderfully predictive insight into what our hearts should look like. In Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this and says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, and let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. 
Now, we live in a decidedly individualistic society. We live amidst a time that is decidedly centered on what does this matter to me and how is this affecting me and on the basis of, of how I am impacted by this, what then should I do? And Paul interrupts that whole process. Now, he didn't write to the people that that was their primary preoccupation, but we find that over the long course of human history, this is the ditch we end up in. I make decisions primarily upon how they affect me. Now, as Paul addresses this to the church there in Philippi, look at this. He says, you know, what's your favorite thing? What's your hobby horse? And you begin to talk about it, and he just slaps you with this word that says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And then he asks you again, he said, what's your hobby horse? What are you most passionate about? You begin to articulate it, and he just slaps you again, and he says, count others more significant than yourselves. And you begin to get the hint, you begin to get the picture that if we are going to be cooperating well together in the spirit of unity, then I need to advocate for others, and that advocation needs to begin interiorly. When I reckon, when I consider, when I Uh, make determinations upon those around me, I need to decide interiorly that they get to be more important than I do. Verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The primary preoccupation of my heart needs to be advocating for the interests and the benefit of other people in this body. That's what it looks like interiorly. That's what my heart should look like. And this is difficult for us that we would subjugate, that we would say, sit in the back seat to my perspectives, that we would say, sit in the back back seat to the things that I want to advance. We would say, to our own interests, you don't get to be primary. You get to be secondary at best because what my primary preoccupation is, is advocating for other people, advocating for their interests. So we need to have a generous attitude. Additionally, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he gives us a picture of what it looks like to have a a loving spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, giving us the understanding there's a right and a wrong way to go about things. He says, do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, putting up with one another, suffering each other, dealing with each other's foibles and shortcomings and, 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 and just loving one another in the midst of this. Why? He says in verse 3 that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We need to bear with one another. I want you to think about how most conflicts within any church you've ever been a part of would look if this was the way that we went into them. You find sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, and they're just really just mad about something, and they're just really advocating it strongly, and just, man, they're just blistering everybody that will, will listen. You can tell when people walk away from having a conversation with them because their ears are bleeding, right? And so they're just berating everybody. But how would that be met if, if our response interiorly in my heart was preoccupied with advocating for others? So when this brother or sister came to me and they're dripping poison from their mouth, and my response is, how is what you're saying advocating for other people? How is what you're saying a a reflection of God's word? How is what you're saying walking in humility? And how is what you're saying demonstrating what it looks like to be eager to maintain the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace? I guarantee you're going to cut those conversations short. Because they're not going to find in you a ready recipient and and a dialogue partner who's ready to browbeat anybody who's willing to listen. But it would seem that this is what Scripture calls us to. 
this gentle and humble heart that's ready to advocate for other people, this gentle and humble heart that is not warmly receiving bitterness. So let's talk about our actions, okay? So if this is our heart, what do our actions look like? And I want to let you know that I've just kind of gone through and cherry-picked a number of things that I thought were important. So I prayed through an entire list of things and thought, you know, what are we going to hit on? How are we going to do this? And you can read through the New Testament and the Old Testament, and you can come up with your own special list, and this is mine. And so you can, uh, I'm welcome to have you challenge that, and we can have long lunches that you pay for. But this is the list that we have, and this is the time that we have allotted to go through it. So let's talk about the, the first thing then, the first thing then that is required of membership. First thing that's required of membership. Now, I'm going to tell you that this, in some sense, is a non-negotiable. Because if you don't have this, you can't have any of the other things. Anybody want to guess at what it is? Attendance. It should be obvious, right? So, attendance. If you can't be here, you can't be a part of it. I want to be a member. I want to be a part of it. I just don't ever want to come. It's just a decidedly a drag, right? And so we, we haven't scheduled this at a decidedly convenient part of the morning. We haven't scheduled it on a day where there's nothing else happening. There's a lot of good stuff on television, especially in the afternoons. But what we find is you get into Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and Paul has, or the, the, the author of Hebrews, maybe it's Paul, maybe it's not, the author of Hebrews is running through, starting in verse 19, with all these terrific, let us, let us, let us draw near with a true heart, let us hold fast the confession of faith. And he gets to verse 24, and he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And so you begin to think that, that some of my role as a church member is looking over and saying, oh, I see Joe, I see Harry, I see Derek, I, I see Brent, and, and I see Simone, and, and how can I see Christ more advanced in their lives, and how can I see them do more pronounced things for the kingdom here in this body? And, 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 and so you begin to think about that, and you think, oh, how can I do this? How can I do that? How can I be involved in them? And then he rolls to verse 21, and he says, or 25, rather, and he says, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some. But encouraging one another all the more and as the day draws near. Quite simply, you cannot be involved and invested if you're not here. You just can't be. You, you can watch online and you can comment and you can do all these various things. But, but if you are physically able, then you should be here. You should be in attendance. And scripture's not writing. It says, like, if you wake up and everything's going well and your kids dress themselves and they eat breakfast perfectly and nobody bickers and you get in the car and it's full of gas and it's not raining and it's, you know, 72 degrees and it's out there and the cowboys don't play until three and, you know, all these various things are coming together and the universe is bending towards this and your coworker who you've invited has finally said they're going to come and all these things and you've not gotten a call from your mother-in-law and all of these things. I mean, so you, just, you hear God from heaven say, you are my son. I think I might be well pleased. And so you begin to drive and as you get there, you get there, and there's an open parking spot, and you know God wants you there. And then as you get closer, you closer, you discover that somebody else needs it more desperately than you do, so you leave. And you say, that was so close, I almost attended. So close, I almost attended. If you think of church attendance kind of culturally, you're going to see a couple of different numbers thrown out. One has this kind of blistering pace of average church attendance at being 20 times a year. And that's, that's pretty impressive, especially when you consider there are 52 Sundays in a year and they've almost hit, almost hit half. And so that's three out of every eight. But, but more critical studies look at church attendance and establish that it's more likely at about nine times a year. And nine times a year. So I want you to think through some of the consequences of that. 
If part of your role is to be advocating for others and stirring them up to loving good deeds, and you show up nine times out of the year, not quite once a month, and, and I walk over, and, and so I talk to Caleb and say, hey, Caleb, how are you? Caleb's response is probably going to be something along the lines of, oh, man, I'm so sorry. What was your name again? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember seeing you six weeks ago. It's so good to see you again. Are you visiting? No, man, I'm a member. I've been a member forever. And what we discover is if we take a lackadaisical approach to attendance, a lazy approach to attendance, then we're going to take a terrible investment in the lives of the people of the church. And the same thing is going to be a consequence to you. If you don't invest in being here and being engaged, let me just tell you, I'm not, like, I don't want to be ugly in this, but no one's going to invest in you either because they don't know you. They don't see you, and you're not giving them opportunity to pour into you because you're never here to allow them to get to know you. It's not that they don't care for you. It's just quite simply, they don't see you enough to care for you. This is unfortunately how this works. And so attendance is a prerequisite to almost all other things. Let's think then, uh, what does it look like? And I, I think the author to the Hebrews gives us another good picture. What does it look like for our actions in our response to church leadership? Our action to church leadership. And so if you are a member, then you have uh, pastors and elders who have been entrusted to the leadership of the church. And so the author to the Hebrews gives us a picture of this in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. And this is, a, I think, a strong word. He says, quite simply, obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, that's tough. That's tough because we, I think we immediately go and we evaluate that on the basis of our experience and we say, such and such leader was just, man, he was an absolute jerk. Such and such leader, he was just an absolute disappointment. Oh, I, you know, I know this church across the way. They, they just browbeat all their people. And, and, I, and I know this church around the corner and, and I went to this church as a child and, and so we run through this whole list of experiences I mean, let me just, just kind of interrupt your process there. Scripture gives a clear account for what you do if you find that one of the pastors is failing. And that is not to sit back and say, well, you know, he's, he's a jerk, but he's more of a jerk to this person over there. He's, he's terrible. Uh, he's awful, but he's, just, he's not really affecting me right now. If you find that somebody is failing, this is why Scripture makes it abundantly clear to file a charge against them to talk to someone in leadership about them and say, I see this significant failure in their lives and your job as a member is to move to address this, but absence of those failures, you're to submit and to obey them. Why? He gives us a quick response because they are keeping watch over your souls. This is the whole idea of shepherding that's wrapped up in John 10. Your church leadership should be not just making decisions, but should be intimately involved in providing watch care for your souls. And Scripture tells us they're not just doing it passively, they're doing it as those who are going to have to give an account. So everybody that serves in any function, in any capacity, in any church, leadership, anywhere, at any time, is going to have to come to a point where they stand before a holy God, and they're giving an account on the basis of how they have discharged their duties of shepherding. It's difficult. So we see this tension there. 
You need to obey and submit because they're going to have to ultimately give an account. And look what he goes on to say. He says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. When I think about this, I think about charging any one of my children to go and do something that they're not particularly jazzed at doing. And do you know what their response is in that moment? Throw head back, eyes roll, momentary possession. It's fleeting, but I'm pretty sure it's there. He says, don't let them do this in such a way that they're groaning. And and then he pairs through this. He says, this would be no advantage to you. So too, church members are going to have to give an account for their response. And so what does he match this with? He says, instead, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. You are to be praying for those in church leadership. You're to be praying that, that their clear uh, conscience would, in fact, be truth, that they would be able to do these things. So let's think about our service. I think service, uh, first and foremost, is service together. So we're not a group of individuals serving. We're a group of people serving. And the Apostle Paul says this well in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. In effort to combat false teaching, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. This is the goal, that we would all mature to be like Jesus. Verse 16, he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly. Church membership requires an active investment of all of us. Not some of us, not the most talented, not the most beautiful, not the most outspoken, but it requires an active investment of all of us. And when everyone is doing their job, when everyone is working in harmony and in unison, they make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is how it has to function. Man, I wish in some sense that what the text would have said, look, you church in Ephesus, Find a dozen people who are just on fire for the Lord, incredibly talented, filthy rich, who are willing to do everything and work with this group. Let them do everything else and everybody else will just kind of be in the periphery, just kind of spinning around and you'll pull them along because of the gravitational pull of your leadership. It doesn't say this. It says it requires all of us, all of us working diligently together to build us up in the bond of peace and to build us up towards love. It requires us working together. So how do we serve? We serve with our time, we serve with our finances, and we serve with our gifting. So let's think about our time. We are uh, over, overtaxed when it comes to time. I can't remember the last time I woke up not tired, and, and I feel like the more and more people I talk to, they have the same response. Man, I'm exhausted. I go to bed tired. I wake up tired. I work this many hours. I have all these obligations. My kids are in 52 sports a year, and everyone has 15 practices a week. And I would question your math and your sanity and your pocketbook, but I get the picture. You're busy. You're busy. The Lord tells us in Psalm 90 verse 12 that we should be taught how to number our days. You know this. We all have the same 24 hours to work with. We all have the same seven days to work with. And we need to be using our time to glorify the Lord instead of using it, I fear, just to make ourselves more and more tired to chase some elusive goal we're never going to attain. Culture is going to keep pushing the goal further and further out. You You need a bigger house, you need a nicer car, you need more money, 
Your kids need more experiences. All these things are growing and growing and growing. And if you set as your goal to the attainment, the achievement of these things, listen, you're never going to get, the, you're never going to get there and you're always going to be dissatisfied. One of the things that we can serve with is to sacrificially give of our time for the radical investment in the church. But let's, let's think about, let's think about our, our financial giving. We serve with our time, we serve with our finances. Now, finances, and, and all of us come to this in varying degrees of ability, right? There are some of us who we can go out to lunch today and it's not a burden. There are others of us that we, we can't and we shouldn't go out to lunch today because it's a significant financial burden on us to be able to eat out. And so we're, we're not one, one shape and, and one size and one bank account, but we all have, I believe, an express command to give, and our giving should be joyous, worshipful, and sacrificial. But I want us just to take a moment and talk about the state of our giving as a local body. Now, let me say before I go into this that we have a number of you who are non-members. You've been non-members for a long time or a short time, and you faithfully give, and we're so thankful for that. But in terms of our membership, and that's what I'm addressing, and that's what these numbers are addressing, okay? In terms of our membership, you have an obligation and a privilege to give. So let's just talk about numbers for a second, and just know this is not my strong suit, so somebody else did this math for me. Man, Chase, thank you for smiling. So we have 218 family units, okay? So just think about this. We're not talking total number of membership. That's that's closer to to 400, but we have 218 family units, the giving units. So my family, my wife and I and our children are one family unit. And of those 218 units, when you're to look at them, roughly a quarter of them don't give anything financially to the church. A little over 50. Uh, just, they, they don't contribute anything financially to the church. Now, you, you may suspect, and, and I've even asked this question, I said, what about this? They are anonymous givers who give cash gifts only. And I really thought I'd solve the riddle of how things work in church life. And, and my assistant looked at me, and she smiled, and she said, I've done this for 50 years, you ignorant, petulant child. She didn't say that, but that, that's what her look communicated. You know, and she just very kindly, she said, well, I can see how you would think that, but you're wrong. We never receive that much cash. All of it would have to come from one person for it to amount to anything. Quite simply, no, that's not the case. So we have a quarter, quarter of our membership who gives nothing. And so let's, let's advance to the next quarter, okay? Let's just pull them in as well. Of that next quarter, so now we've gotten half of our membership, the next quarter uh, gives up to $1,000 a year. Up to $1,000 a year. So if, if we teach, and I think the Bible communicates in some sense that, that a, a tithe, when you get to the New Testament, is kind of this easy beginning point of giving, right? It's just this easy thing that we kind of kick out there. Oh, I need to give at least 10%. It it doesn't require any thought, it doesn't require any prayer. And so let's just say that that if a tithe is how your family operates and and you're giving that 10% before or after tax, then you're somehow managing to live on less than $10,000 a year. And and, and knowing many of you and walking through the parking lot and seeing your houses or whatever, 
man, somebody is supporting you and they're doing it really well because there's just no other way mathematically for this to be possible. And so we have a, a half of our body, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to poke at those who, for whatever reason, you're just not able, and, 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 and this really is where you're at. I'm just saying that for the most of us, this is not where we're at. If we're going to look at, look at our church and, and think about this, kind of where we are currently is about two weeks behind on our budget. We're about $40,000 uh, back in our giving. And a lot of this stems from that we have a terrific number of our people who just, they don't give. They don't give faithfully. They don't give joyously. They don't give worshipfully. They give to appease some sense of guilt, perhaps. They give out of some sense of compulsion. They give haphazardly. If everybody tied, this wouldn't be an issue, and we could fund every church in town. But most people don't. Most people don't consider giving. They take the approach that I did when I was a kid. I remember going to restaurants with my, with my parents, and my dad would walk in, and you know, we'd order the food, and the food would be sat on the table, and, and we'd eat, and, and he'd have some short conversation with, with the guy who'd been serving us, and then we'd leave, and I'd go home, and I wouldn't think about it again, not thinking that he worked. And when he worked, he got paid, and when he paid, he was able to take our family out to eat. And so some of us have that approach when we come into church. We don't realize that the reason that it's comfortable in here some Sundays and cold on other ones is because the air conditioners are working. The reason the air conditioners are working is we pay an electric bill, and the reason we pay an electric bill is because people give. The reason that we could walk back over there and hit that light switch and have the lights turn off or on is because we've paid our electric bill. We have paid our electric bill, haven't we? The reason we have paid staff and we're able to take mission trips and we keep people on the mission field and we're able to give to support the recovery work happening in Texas even today from the flooding is because people give. And our ability to be impactful and to be engaged is expressly tied to people giving. It's a command, it's a privilege, it's an obligation of membership to give to the financial ministry of the church. And so I've been asked several times, you know, we have more people than we've had in the past. Why is our giving down? Is there, is there anything we could say? Is there a process that we can engage in? Could we garnish their wages? And I was like, I don't know, I'll look into it. Sad discovery, we can't. Yet. Man, it takes a work of the Lord's heart, I think, to lead us to be generous. We don't need people to make more money. We need people to be generous in their hearts. Generosity is not something that's born out of being wealthy. Generosity is a process that the Spirit has enacted in us. And I want to show you a picture of it, okay? And this is my prayer that we would look like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's talking about Philippi, Achaia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, things are terrible and they're so excited about it. And in their extreme poverty, they've got nothing. They have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Hold up things are terrible, they don't have anything, and they set their minds on being generous, and they give a terrific sum. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord. Paul didn't write them and say, look, we need your help, we need your help now. He didn't lay a guilt trip on them. 
they set it in their minds. We want to be generous. We want to be impactful. And look at what they do in verse 4. They begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What that church in Macedonia, what those churches in Macedonia did was to submit themselves to the leadership of the Lord and say, what would you have us give? What would generosity look like for us? God didn't radically change their situation. He didn't say, oh, they've decided to be generous. Open up the floodgates. Let's just pull back taxation. Let's give them all a raise. In the midst of affliction and testing and severe poverty, they gave abundantly because the Lord had laid it on their heart to do so. And we're given no indication anywhere in Scripture that things got better for them financially. I want to stress that. We don't give so that we get more. We give out of a sense of responsibility and obligation. This is what it looks like for us to be generous. So maybe your, your situation doesn't allow it, but it does call for all of us to be radically invested in the financial ministry of the church. Now, I'm not going to belabor this, but, but Paul also gives us a picture of, of serving in our gifting. So we serve together, we serve in our time, we serve with our money, and we serve in our giftings. In salvation, when you came to know the Lord, he has gifted you with different things to be invested in the kingdom. And we spent months going through this, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you can read this, Paul gives us a metaphor. But prior to the metaphor, he says in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts God has given you are meant to be used within the church for the building up of those around you. They're meant to be used within the confines of the church for building up those around you. In 21 and 22, he goes on, he says, speaking of these various parts, he says, I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, all the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You may look at the various gifts and talents the Lord has given you and trusted to you and say, what good am I for the body? Friend, you are of infinite value. You are necessary and needed and treasured by your Father in heaven. Your investment is ordained by God. Please use your giftings for the advancement of the kingdom. Allow God to use you mightily. So it gives us this picture of our actions together. Verse 26, he says, if anyone uh, member suffers, all suffers together. And if anyone member is honored, all rejoice together. We saw in the testimony of the Sandins what it looks like for one to suffer. And I hope what you, what you heard in that as well is what it looks like for a body to suffer alongside them. And repeatedly, we, we hear from people who are rejoicing, we see what it looks like for those to rejoice alongside them. Membership is this wonderfully beautiful time of communion together where we're journeying through this life together and that's what it is to serve so think about it in terms of you know, what happens when when there's the tough call of membership and we've had longer conversations on discipline but but i just want us to understand this and i want us to see this from this perspective that occasionally within the confines of a church and if you are a member and you've you've signed your membership agreement and you've had an opportunity to meet with us then you recognize that that one of the calls for membership is to be engaged in the process of church discipline so i want to look at this briefly from galatians 6 1 church discipline effectively somebody who's been engaged in either heresy they believe something that's not true and they persist in it 
or gross immorality, they're doing something that is sinful and they persist in it. So we go to them and we say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you believe this. I can't believe you're doing this. You have to stop this. You can't engage in that. And they say, we don't care what the Bible says. We don't care what Jesus says. We're going to stick with it. So Galatians 6 gives us a picture of, of what our response should be. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It requires a radical investment of the membership of the church if we find our brother or sister engaged in persisting in sin with a refusal to relent. Matthew 18 spells it out in more express detail. You've got this brother or sister who's sinning against you. You go to them. They won't hear it. You bring two or three more uh, to confront them, and they won't hear it. You bring them before the church, and before the church, they still refuse to relent in their sin. And so he says, if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And in Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Whatever you bind on earth is bound. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed. So we go through this process and we're disciplining Bob over here. And Bob, this is what you get for sitting on the front row. And so we bring him up and we say, look, this is this, is this six month or however long process we've engaged in with Bob. And we've said, this is what's going on. And we've talked to Bob and Bob says, I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to keep doing it. You can't stop me. And we say, Bob, we see no evidence of regeneration. We see no evidence that your heart truly belongs to Jesus because you're going to persist in this sin. We've shown you that it's sin, and you completely disagree. So here we are at this stage, Bob. We're going to ask the church family to withdraw fellowship from you. The Bible tells us that we're to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And quite simply, we take our lead from that, saying, how did Jesus treat these two groups of people? Jesus spent so much time engaged in working expressly with them that he's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. So our posture and position towards Bob isn't away with you, we never want to see your face again, but it's one of a change of disposition. We move from discipling, growing him in the faith, to evangelism, winning him for the faith because his testimony and the way he lives give us no impression that he's a Christian. This is what church discipline is. It looks to be restorative, not punitive restorative not punitive now this has just been drinking from a fire hose but let me leave us with this understanding of the ambassadorial role we are ambassadors this is 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 a final role for membership in second corinthians chapter 5 verses 17 through 20 this is where we'll end he says therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation a a statement of fact if god has done a work of of renewal and transformation in you, if you have believed on the sacrifice of Jesus for the atoning of your sins, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he has given to us a ministry of reconciliation. So God has made you new, he has made you whole, and then he has commissioned you and given you and said, uh, go out, Katie, go out, Jesse, go out, Anna. That is, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us a ministry of reconciliation. It's bewildering. The creator God of the universe does the unimaginable in sending his son to die on the sake of his creation. To be the atoning sacrifice for your sin and my sin, and then entrusting to us this ministry 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The high call of church membership, in some sense, sets us apart from being a consumer in our culture. It's costly. It requires our time. It requires active investment on our part. But it stands the possibility of fundamentally altering and transforming someone's eternity. We've been called to serve together. And we've been called to go together. Let me pray for us and ask that God would burden our hearts to go just as he is is burdening our hearts to serve here. Father, we come to you and ask that you would move in our hearts, that you would stir us up to serve those around us. Father, you have accomplished a terrific amount. And God, I pray that we would be faithful to honor you in responding in a service to you. And so God, I pray for those who are considering what it would look like for them to serve in this body or some other body in our community. Help them to be passionately, actively involved and invested in reaching the lost. And God, I pray that you would help them to be passionate and actively involved and invested in the lives of those fellow believers they are journeying alongside with. We submit these things to your sons in your son's name. Amen. Amen.